0: welcome everybody good life housing partners today is tuesday october 17th it is the day after tax day and i am sitting here by myself recording a podcast with executive producer jason fong his co-producer Braham, and we are going to approach today's podcast a little differently David's on the road. He's uh, been in New York last week and going to the NMHC Student Housing Conference in Las Vegas this week. So it's me doing a solo cast, and we thought we'd uh, finally get to some of these reader questions that have been rolling in over the past couple months. So I've got five, six questions here, and I'm going to just kind of just start uh, answering what I can and give you what, I, what insights I, I got. And here we go. So the first question is from Branson, Missouri, and John asks, if you were a long-term holder of Class A office space, what would you do to increase occupancy in today's market? Well, John, that is a fantastic question that is posed to many Class A office holders, and I think even posed to the many holders of that Class A office debt, who are both trying to answer that question by the minute, probably, and probably keeps many folks up at night. Um, I, I honestly think that office has really shifted since the pandemic. And I think it really, it was already starting to shift. Pandemic accelerated a trend that was already happening. And by that, I mean, office space in itself was being used less and less. And I've heard statistics as much as you know, offices would be about only at maximum 75% of the the time occupied. And so if you think about it on a seven-day week, most offices aren't going to be in on Saturday, Sunday, you know. So that's already two days gone. So that's, you know, that's roughly 25% of your week is gone right there. And then, you know, Fridays have become a, a day that a lot of people don't want to be forced to come into the cities where offices may have been. And so that's kind of a half day. And so you're now down to two, you're down to basically four and a half days of, of, of actual use of the building. Whereas an apartment or a, a store, those places are generally occupied on a day-to-day basis. So just, you know, you're starting to see this shift, starting with the reduction in Friday hours. A lot of companies would let people off kind of half day on Friday. Um, you were starting to see flexible work happening even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic really accelerated all this. Um, so I think, you know, to your question, it's a, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult answer. And I think you what what I've kind of come to is the office needs to be a place where you can really do not only your work, but something else. And the easiest thing I've come up with is every office if you really want to get people down there, needs to have like a superior, like a very good gym. And I think that more and more people are working out. And so if you can give them access to a gym facility and then an office in you know, the remaining floors upstairs or something like this configuration, I think you'll see more usage because people will say, well, I'll get a workout in and I'll take my, you know, I'll, I'll take a meeting or two in the office or I'll meet my whomever. Um, so I think this, th- that's the best answer I've come up with and it, I think, but the reality is like, you know, a company like related, which owns Equinox, you know, could theoretically start putting this into practice by creating grand Equinoxes in some of these Manhattan skyscrapers or wherever, and actually start saying, okay, we have this fantastic gym downstairs and with your office lease, you get a membership to Equinox. But it it hasn't happened. So there's got to be something that has also, you know, is not allowing this to exactly take shape thus far. So it's a difficult question. I wish I had a great answer. I I really don't. Um, But I would really, if I was, I'm glad we're not holders of any class A or B office space or C for that matter. But I would really focus on how do I make the building more appealing to not only the, the the leaseholders, this is the tenants, the law offices, engineering, real estate firms like ours, but the actual the actual people that are using the space, the, the people of that company. And anything at the gym is like the easiest thing I can come up with. Um all right, next question we've got is this is a good one too. I like this one. This is uh, from Jan in Philadelphia. And how do you deal with office flex tenants upset? when they get switched from having a gross lease to a triple net lease. So let me just back up a second, Jan. The the office or flex tenants historically for many, many years, especially on the the lower end, like the C or B quality assets, oftentimes would have just a simple gross lease. So whatever your rent is, let's just say it's a dollar a foot or $12 per year, It would just be that that would be the full amount of how much you pay like an apartment lease in the last as you in especially in more class a office or class a industrial or wherever they started coming out with this idea many many years ago that instead of the landlord being responsible for the expenses of the asset or the building, the tenant should actually, because they're actually using the space. So the tenant should be responsible for the maintenance, for the taxes, for the insurance, for the you know, all the expenses that go with the building. And so this idea of netting out the expenses and then billing back your tenants for these became very popular, obviously, because it took a lot of the, the expense away from the landlord and it forced also The tenant to control how much light they were using, how much AC they were running, because they would be charged for it, very simply. So this concept really took charge, I don't know, probably about 50 years ago, and especially in the Class A environments, Class A retail, Class A office. And it is slowly over 50 years trickled down into B and C. And in most of our portfolio, where we own industrial we typically will go in with the plan to bring everybody, because most people in class B industrial are not used to having net expenses, and we will slowly modify those expenses from being gross to triple netted back to the tenant themselves. And generally, you're gonna get a little pushback. You're gonna get a tenant two that doesn't like this additional billing, that they don't want to pay for this, that they find it to be unfair um, and I think what we generally, our, 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 way of approaching it is that these are bu- these are expenses for the building. And the best thing for us to do is let's all share the expenses fairly so we can control them fairly. So it's not just one person, the landlord or the property owner, you know, having to make sure all the lights are off and make sure that the water's not dripping or make sure that the insurance is being, It makes it easier in theory, when you kind of divide all the expenses. So I think, I think that it's a, it's a very, um, I, I would say it's a very egalitarian way of distributing expenses to tenants, but, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a bit biased, but that, that's generally how we approach it. We try to have a very basic conversation. We try to go in and just really just explain that, you know, by sharing these expenses and having these expenses, you know, uh, equally divided, it's a much fairer way and better way to control the building's expenses. And for the most part, I think it's worked. We've had very few tenants leave because of uh, expenses going back to them. So good question though, it's an excellent question. It's a difficult conversation, but usually after you have it, everyone kind of walks away and understands it a little better and usually it's, it goes fine. All right, next question. What asset class do you think will cash flow the best over the next two years of line? Man, this is from Janet in West Palm Beach. Jen, that's a doozy. Uh, Really good question. Something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I would say that, you know, the obvious one for a long time was multifamily. And I think multifamily still has a chance to be a very good asset class through this sort of high interest rate environment or rising interest rate environment or whatever you want to call it. But in terms of actually getting cash flow from multifamily, especially larger communities, you know, investment grade communities that are 150 units and up, it's much more challenging. I think it's it's uh, because there's still quite a bit of distance or dislocation between what a seller wants to sell that community for and what a buyer is willing to pay for it, especially with interest rates where they sit today. So. That I think that's sort of off the table. You really, when you're buying multifamily today, you're obviously hoping to achieve cash flow and, and achieve yield. But reality is, I think you're really trying to buy at a low basis to then hopefully, when things, if and when they bounce back to where they were before this slowdown over the last eighteen months, that you will get some real appreciation because you'll have a rush of buyers back into the multifamily space. So I wouldn't bank on cash flow there or yield. Um, What I think is interesting is it it, it may be retail because, you know, in a lot of ways, if you can finance your retail projects at, you know, even if you just get market rate financing on retail, which is going to run you somewhere between 7-8%, the cap rate of most retail projects, and I'm talking not super class A, you know, outdoor experiential, a class coastal location or something that's pretty hard to replace i'm saying this is more your bread and butter you know it's got a couple restaurants it's got a you know fantastic sam's maybe it's got stuff that people actually got to go to but it's not a um what would i would consider like a very super high credit center and those are trading for somewhere you know depending where you are but like in los angeles those will trade anywhere from five and a half to six cap with upside. And if you're in other you know, secondary markets, those are probably more in the seven to eight or even eight and a half range. But a lot of these, I think, because retail has already had such a rough go of it since the last great financial crisis in 2008, that retail's actually sort of been sort of right-sized in terms of where cap rates are more are much higher. They're going to be 150, 200 basis points, 300 basis points higher than what you're going to be able to buy multifamily. And I think that's really where you might get into something where you can actually buy a retail project, you can do some value add to it, whether it be raising the existing tenant brands, whether it be finding new tenants for vacant space or something else, repositioning the asset somehow. And if you can do that, I think you can really get to delivering a, nine, 10, 11, 12 cap deal. I think it's it become fairly realistic. And so even if the financing is running you eight and a half, nine 9%, you can still in certain projects, especially in secondary markets, you can you can do some interesting improvements to retail centers and, and ways to get the revenue up that you can actually achieve some real cash flow. So that, that being said, it's, it's probably, and it's also not as, Sought after as maybe multifamily or even industrial, where a lot of people are moving to. what I'm seeing in the last month, I've seen a remarkable number of multifamily brokers that are now somehow putting up a, a random industrial listing. They've just, you know, just like, hey, I've got this. You know, I'm trying to sell a 20 unit building. i have also got this industrial deal. You know, that's 10,000 feet somewhere over here. And it's like, it's and and. Not that they can't do that. That's fine. But I don't think I've ever seen it where somebody's just got like, you know, been a mostly an apartment broker for a long time. And now they just got like a random industrial deal. So it is definitely flowing from out of our multifamily space into industrial. I think industrial is a good one too, but it, it is competitive and it's um, it's hard to find. And it's not had the same sort of headline, bad headline news or, or sort of shrinking square footage like retail, where they, where there's a, now you're actually seeing certain areas where there seems to be like, not a maybe drastic need for retail, but you're seeing retail do really well. And you're seeing tenants, you know, be very willing to pay maybe higher rents, especially when they see, can see the business translation. So I like retail. Uh, if you can figure out an office, that's probably a great one, but it's probably a lot more risky. Um, all right. We got another question here. That's a good one. Uh, this is from George in Las Vegas. Ah, maybe he saw David. So, do you think electric car charging stations will become a standard amenity in retail or and or multifamily? Great question. So, I think there's, this is going to. The, the, my short answer is yes, George. And I think what's going to happen is for multifamily having a level two charger. So this is the type of charger that is costs anywhere from two to three to four dollars an hour. It charges your car in somewhere between four and six hours. So maybe while you're sleeping or maybe while you're at the office, you go from having a low charge on your car to a fairly full battery over five, six hours. And this is a very reasonable cost of insulation. It just basically... You just are plugging in generally the existing electrical panel and it's a fairly simple cost and installation to put in level two charters. Um It's also not very costly. It only costs somewhere in the range of $10,000, $15,000. Um, and I can see that amenity definitely in apartments. I can see those in office buildings. You're seeing that, especially here in California, you're seeing numbers of office and multifamily have this. And I think it's actually part of new, construction is you do actually have to now start installing these I think in California. So for the level two charge, I think you're going to see quite a bit. The more interesting one is what's called the supercharger and the supercharger essentially is a much larger charger that actually will charge your electric vehicle in somewhere between 30 minutes and 45 minutes. It's a a very high speed charger, It, it puts a lot of power into the car very quickly. Uh, it, it has. It needs a, a much more. It needs a dedicated uh, electrical line. It needs a. You know. It needs some a pretty high amount of voltage to get your char- charge charged that fast. It's it's much more expensive. It's probably ten times the price. So somewhere in the range of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and these chargers typically are are really they're not as an amenity but as a way of making revenue and you can charge, I've seen them charge as little as $15 for that 30, 40 minute charge to as much as 25, $35. So there is substantial revenue with these charges. There's a substantial upfront cost, but I think you can mitigate that over time because you should be, if you're in a high traffic, highly visible, accessible location, you should be getting electric vehicles to your location and charging. So I think it, for retail especially, I think it's going to be harder for multi because typically multi-family, especially in in most urban or primary locations, it's not that easy to access the community or the garage. But retail, I think, makes a ton of sense. I think some office will also start having this, especially where you can actually install it. Um, so I can I can see this becoming more and more um, ubiquitous. I can just see it like kind of. Just like, you, you know, you'll have, and you're seeing it. So you're seeing it it's like, if you ever made the drive from Las Vegas to LA or LA, there is a literally a giant charging station with like 30, 40 chargers. And it's somewhere, I think near Barstow. So right kind of in the middle between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And there's a Carl's Jr. there. And so everyone, just, you know, gets a charge in, they get some Carl's Jr. And 30, 40 minutes later, they're on their way and they, you know, they, it's a, it, I, I, that truck, Jr. has to be doing some like bonkers business because that thing, you have a very captivated customer that is, you know, needs a charge and, you know, might, might want a Western double cheeseburger. Um, all right. That, that was question four. Great question, George. Thank you for that. Um, question five. This is kind of a funny one. Uh, So the question was from Kathy in Boise, Idaho. How is TikTok or podcasts as a digital education platform for real estate investors or entrepreneurs? Um, Listen, it's a great question. You know, we've done a number of real estate educational podcasts, just kind of trying to explain basic topics of real estate, how to get more involved, um, concepts in real estate. And we have a number of those in our, in our library, in our archive. And I think it's a great medium for people to hear from their peers or people they're interested in learning more about where they can actually, you know, you can learn things like what is a capitalization rate, a cap rate, as we call it, or what is something like a, um, an, a levered versus unlevered return, things that you know, if you're getting into the business, these are kind of fundamental concepts that, that you're going to want to know as a real estate investor or entrepreneur that, that are important. And uh, podcasts or seeing these on TikTok can be very helpful. Um, you can learn a lot of basic concepts or even more extre- more difficult concepts, you know, on your own time, wherever you want to do that. And I think I think it's actually. I've I've learned a ton of stuff through podcasts. Not as much through TikTok, but I've learned a ton through podcasts. And I I'm a big believer that this is a, a medium that's that's only going to grow as we as it becomes more and more accessible and more and more people are aware of it. So yeah, I think it's a great question, Kathy. Thank you for that one. Um, all right, folks, that's going to wrap us up. I only could get through five today, but uh, thank you again for joining. Please do keep the questions coming. Uh, if you can subscribe or leave us a review or do both, we will be immensely happy. So please do that if you get a chance. And uh, yeah, this is a, a good little Q&A. And again, thank you, everyone, for the questions. And I, ho- I hope I answered anything. If I missed something, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're, we're here to help. So thank you again, everyone. And we will talk again soon. Maybe even uh, David will be back in the, the co-chair seat here next week. So looking forward to that. All right, folks, thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon.